Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott. Whether in the West or in the Third World, a hallmark of Stott's ministry has been expository preaching that addresses not only the hearts, but also the minds of contemporary men and women. Today, John Stott presents a study on the universal appeal and attraction of Jesus. I wonder if by any chance somebody has been puzzled by the fact that the program of these next two weeks is entitled, Whatever Happened to God? While the title that has been given to me for these three Sunday evenings is Investigating Jesus. And somebody may be asking, but isn't it possible to rediscover God without investigating Jesus? Why must we always drag Jesus into it when we're talking about God? Well, let me try to answer your question. It's for this reason, that we can't begin by asking questions about God until we know what God we're talking about. When some people tell me they don't believe in God, I want immediately to say, neither do I, if that's the God you're talking about. I certainly don't believe in the God that some people believe in. In fact, the only God that Christians believe in is the God revealed by Jesus Christ. And that's why, when asking the question, whatever happened to God, it's actually logical to investigate Jesus. Tonight, as you may have seen, I'm to talk about the source of his magnetism. Next Sunday night, the cause of his death. And two Sundays from now, the significance of his resurrection. And I would be very grateful if you would turn to the Bible that you have there on your seat in front of you or somewhere and look at the passage of the Bible that was read to us just now. In the New Testament section, it's John and it's chapter 12. I won't read it all to you again, of course, but just a few verses, if I may. John 12, let me begin with verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast or festival were some Greeks so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, another apostle. They both had Greek names. That may be why they were involved. And Andrew went with Philip, and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The, sun, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it multiplies. It bears much fruit. Then skip to verse 32. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. It was springtime in Palestine. Palestine. 
And the fields outside the city will have been carpeted with anemones and poppies, which in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, were not excelled even by Solomon in all his glory. It was not any springtime, it was Passover time, and huge crowds had come up to Jerusalem for the festival. Jesus himself had also arrived for the same purpose. He had arrived, as we might say, in state. Because you know the story, don't you? He, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he rode into the capital city on a donkey in deliberate fulfillment of a prophecy of Zechariah that the king of Israel would ride into his capital city on an ass or donkey and the foal of an ass. And the crowds had given him a tumultuous welcome, spreading palm branches on the road and acclaiming him, Hosanna to the king of Israel. Then a wonderful moment. Now, among these pilgrims who had come up to the feast of the Passover were some Greeks. Now, we need to think about who they were for a moment. They were neither complete pagans, untouched by Judaism, or they wouldn't have come up for a Jewish feast, nor were they complete Jews, that is to say, they had not become proselytes and been converted to Judaism. They were halfway between the two. They were almost certainly what came to be called God-fearers, who, while remaining Greeks or Gentiles, were very much attracted by the monotheism and by the morality of the Jewish faith. So they were Greeks by birth, by upbringing, and by culture, but they were attracted to the faith of Judaism. Now John, the author of this fourth gospel, introduces them to us, he presents them to us as what I very much hope many of us are here tonight, sincere seekers after the truth. Because neither the philosophy of the Greeks nor the religion of Judaism had satisfied the hunger of their hearts. They were still spiritually thirsty. So they came to Philip. Again, the likelihood is they came to him because he was one of the two or twelve apostles who had a Greek name. And they asked, the Greek word means they kept asking. They were very persistent, as I hope we are too. They kept asking, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Not just to set eyes on him, mind you. I'm quite certain they'd already done that. Many, many people had seen Jesus, maybe from a distance. These Greeks may even have been there for the triumphal entry into the, uh, into the city. They will have seen Jesus. That's not what they meant. They didn't want just to set eyes on him. They wanted to spend time with him. They wanted to be granted an audience, an interview, a dialogue, a conversation with Jesus. So what do you think their motive was? I'm sure it wasn't idle curiosity. They were genuine, 
in their search for the truth. They'd heard the claims of Jesus. They'd heard the teaching of Jesus. They wanted to investigate Jesus. They said to themselves, I wonder if by any chance he, Jesus, might have the clue which so far has eluded us. They wanted to see Jesus. The only uncertainty was whether Jesus was willing to see them. Because they were Greeks, were they not outside the pale? Why should he take an interest in them? They asked themselves. Well, Jesus' reply to their question was indirect, but very clear in its implications. Have you got the text open still before you? Verse 23, page 101. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, that is Philip and Andrew, who presented to him the request of the Greeks. Jesus said to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, that is for him to be revealed in his true glory. Then he went on, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it multiplies. What on earth did he mean by those things? Well, he meant that if the Greeks were wanting to see Jesus, they had chosen the precisely right moment in which to do so, because he was about to be revealed in the fullness of his glory, not as the King of Israel only, but as the Savior of the world. That is why he was going to be lifted up on the cross to die. And if a grain of wheat remains, if it doesn't die, it remains alone. But only if the wheat drops into the grave of the earth and dies, it multiplies. Just so it is through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for the sins of the world that he through death in his disciples has multiplied until the community of Jesus today is a worldwide phenomenon. Then to clinch it, he goes on in verse 32, When I am lifted up from the earth, lifted up first onto the cross, and then onto the throne of God in heaven, I will draw all people to myself. The magnetism of Jesus drawing people to himself. Now the verb to draw is used literally in a number of ways of drawing a sword, hauling a net, dragging people into safety out of a burning building and so on. Literally, it is used of drawing, dragging, pulling in many different ways. Figuratively, it expresses that inward pull. That I would be very surprised if anybody in church tonight has not experienced from some time or another that inward pull, that powerful attraction to something or someone that we find it very hard to resist. Jesus says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw 
attract all kinds of people unto myself in all ages and places. You know, the truth is that people have often despised and rejected Jesus. Some people have hated him, cursed him, slandered him, and fought him. But the one thing people are unable to do, however hard they try, is to ignore him. Indeed, the fact that you're here in church tonight means that that is so for you. People cannot ignore Jesus. They sweep him under the carpet, but he pops out again. And somehow he has his own ways of reasserting his presence. He keeps returning, intruding, interfering, pulling, drawing, tugging, appealing, in all these ways. And even when he repels people, he attracts them. So, for the rest of my time tonight... I want to talk to you about the universal appeal of Jesus. The universal attraction of Jesus. That when he is lifted up from the earth, he draws people to himself. First, Jesus Christ draws to himself people of all races. Very hard for us in the 20th century to understand the depth of mutual antipathy which there was between Jews and Gentiles. They positively loathed one another. But Jesus Christ united them in his own community, reconciling them to one another. It was an amazing feat. Still today, there are some people who try to make out that Jesus is a racist. I have heard people in Africa say... Christianity is a white man's religion. It's got nothing to do with Africans. Or I remember Malcolm X, that black radical American of a couple of decades ago, in his book on, called Malcolm X, kept referring to Jesus as the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus who belongs to whites but doesn't belong to blacks. I've heard some Asians refer to Jesus as a Westerner who has nothing to offer to the East. But do I need to remind you Jesus Christ was not a white man? He was certainly not a Westerner or a European. His origins were Semitic and his skin was certainly dark and swarthy. Palestine has never been a part of Europe. And I believe it was God's deliberate purpose that Christ should be born in Palestine, which is contiguous to three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia. The truth is that Jesus has drawn people to himself from every race, nation, and tribe, from every continent and country. Why, look around you tonight, you've seen how multiracial multinational and multicultural is the congregation that is assembled this evening. And we're told that on the last day, the final company of the redeemed followers of Jesus, gathered before the throne of God, will be drawn from every tribe, nation, people, and language on earth. So, I wonder if there is somebody here tonight who has been hurt by racial discrimination, then let me assure you, you will never be treated by Jesus Christ 
in that way, even if some of his followers have sunk so low as to do so. Jesus has never despised anybody on account of their race. He draws people to himself from all races. Second, he draws people to himself from both sexes. It's very unfortunate that in many of the English versions, even, I regret, in the New International Version and the New English Bible, my text, which is verse 42, says, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. But the word men is not in the Greek sentence. It's incredible how translators can lapse into sexist language. It's got nothing to do with men. It's just the word all in the plural. I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people and all kinds of people, including men and women. Now, it's quite true Jesus was born a man, but he was unfailing in the respect and courtesy that he showed to women. And in this he stood out against contemporary Judaism in which you may know the head of the household prayed every day, thanks be to God who has not made me a Gentile, a slave or a woman. And I remind you only of one incident. Passing through Samaria towards the beginning of his ministry, Jesus stopped at the well of Sychar. It was a historic site associated with the patriarch Jacob. The time was 12 noon, the sun was hot, Jesus was weary and thirsty, and he sat down by the well. At that very moment, a woman from Samaria, a Samaritan woman, arrived at the well, and he asked her for a drink. She was dumbfounded. She said, how on earth is it that you, who are a Jew, should ask a drink of me, who am a Samaritan? In Jewish eyes, that woman had three disabilities. She was a woman, she was a Samaritan, a half-caste between Jew and Gentile, and she was immoral. As Jesus later said to her, she'd had five husbands, and the man she was now living with was no longer her husband. So in Jewish eyes, you couldn't think much lower than that, to be a woman and a Samaritan and an immoral sinner. But Jesus treated her with courtesy and with respect. Jesus spoke to her, to a woman in public, which wasn't done in those days. I wonder if there's anybody here tonight who has been hurt by male chauvinism. Then I want to tell you, you will never be treated like that by Jesus. Jesus despises nobody on account of their sex. Then thirdly, Jesus Christ draws to himself People of all ages. It's always rather amused me that some people think that Christianity is only for old fogies, while other people say, well, no, it's actually only for kids. The truth is, it's for both. 
and for everybody in between. Do you remember that beautiful incident when the mothers brought their babies to Jesus that he might touch them? And the apostles of Jesus, so estranged were they from his mind and spirit, so little did they enter into his mentality and perspective at that time, his disciples told the mothers to keep away. They said, the master can't be bothered with babies. Take him away. Jesus was indignant with his own followers. And he rebuked them as they had rebuked the mothers. And he said, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. To them belongs the kingdom of God. And he added, by the way, if you adults want to get into the kingdom of God, you've got to become like children yourself. The only people who ever get into the the kingdom of God are children and the childlike. That's what the kingdom is composed of. I recently read Lord Hailsham's autobiography, and I rather like this uh, eloquent passage about Jesus. He describes his discovery that what they crucified was a young man, vital, full of life and the joy of it, the Lord of life itself, and even more the Lord of laughter, someone so utterly attractive that people followed him for the sheer fun of it. The 20th century needs to recapture the vision of this glorious and happy man. He was no pale Galilean. His mere presence filled his companions with delight. He was a veritable Pied Piper of Hamelin, who would have the children laughing all round him and squealing with pleasure and joy as he picked them up. Lord Hailsham calls Jesus the most lovable young man that was ever born of woman and walked this earth. Jesus is remarkably ageless in his appeal. He draws children to him, they love him. He draws adolescents to him. I was an adolescent when I came to Christ, 17. He draws young men and young women in the full powers of their vigorous manhood and womanhood. He draws the middle age to himself and the elderly too. There is an agelessness about Jesus Christ. And I wonder if there is somebody here who has been hurt by being told that you're either too young or too old for something or other. You won't be treated like that by Jesus. He despises nobody on account of their age. And then fourthly, Jesus draws to himself people of all social classes, if I may use that rather unpleasant word. There is no doubt, at least in the United Kingdom still, that the Church of England has suffered, and other churches too, for what is sometimes called the middle-class captivity of the church. And that it is in the inner cities and in the great industrial complexes of Britain that many of the the workers are out of touch with the church, although not, I think, having rejected Jesus Christ, he's never really been introduced to them or they to him. 
At all events, Jesus plainly contradicted this image. The Jesus of Nazareth, you know, didn't mix very much with the rich or the powerful or the famous or the religious though he was always available to them if they wanted him, instead Jesus made friends with social outcasts, the people who were despised and rejected by the establishment of his own day. Jesus was severely criticized for the company he kept. This man receives sinners, they said, and he actually eats with them. Yes, and he kept company with the poor and the deprived and the marginalized people of society, even with tax collectors, doubly despised, A, because they worked for the hated Romans, and B, because they were cheats and thieves. But Jesus consorted with them. He mixed with them freely and with prostitutes as well. And when one approached him from behind when he was reclining at a meal and wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and covered them with kisses, Jesus did not shrink from her. He accepted her love and her homage. That's the authentic Jesus. I wonder if there's somebody here who's been hurt by social snobbery You won't be treated like that by Jesus. He doesn't despise anybody on account of their social status. I want to share with you one of the most moving experiences that I have had in the last five years or so. I was in Norway in 1986. It was May. I'd been speaking to some clergy, and we just had a great service in the cathedral in Stavanger, a magnificent edifice in the 12th century A.D. We'd come more or less to the end of the service, and uh, we'd sung the last hymn, and the congregation was waiting for the bishop in the Norwegian church to give his blessing to the congregation, when suddenly at the west door of the church there was a disturbance. The silence was broken by the shouts of a woman. Looking down to the West End, I saw that she was probably in her thirties, slightly disheveled, as she began to walk up the center aisle, and nobody attempted to restrain her. She just continued walking and shouting, in Norwegian. I turned to the dean. I said, what is she saying? And he translated her. She's saying that at the beginning of the service, the bishop had welcomed the congregation and said everybody was welcome. And she wondered if she would be welcome because she, she said, was a prostitute. She'd had an illegitimate child. She was also on drugs. Would the bishop welcome her? she said. So she continued shouting. It was evident she was making a beeline for the bishop himself. And there she was with her arms outstretched in mute appeal with a look of anguish upon her face. And the bishop didn't move. There was no look of disapproval on his face, only a smile of welcome. 
And as he stood there at the high altar, she flung herself sobbing into his arms. And he held her and hugged her and spoke to her about Jesus. That is the authentic Jesus. He draws people to himself like a magnet. People of all races, of both sexes, of all ages, and of all classes. Nobody is despised. Nobody is disqualified. Nobody is rejected if they will but come and commit themselves to him. I want to stop there in just a moment. Except to add these things. The Jesus who calls people to himself is the Jesus who is lifted up on the cross. And if Jesus himself is magnetic, Jesus Christ crucified is more magnetic still. That's my subject next Sunday night. I hope you'll come back to see why he was lifted up on the cross to draw people to himself. And that's the other thing. He draws people to himself, not primarily to the church, though those who follow him do want to join his community, but he doesn't draw people primarily to a particular culture or a particular theology or a particular anything else. He draws people to himself. And what you are being invited to do is to recognize the magnetism of Jesus. It's he who wants you to come to himself. And if you begin to feel the magnetism of Jesus, I beg you, don't resist it. As we remain seated, let's be quiet for a moment in prayer. Let's be silent and think for a moment of the magnetism of Jesus Christ. He draws people of all races and nations, all ages and classes, both sexes. Nobody is disqualified. And we have to make our response to him in the silence. We thank you so very much, Lord Jesus Christ, for your almost irresistible magnetism. I thank you for the day 50 years ago when I felt your magnetism and was drawn to put my trust in you. And many, many others here could say the same. But some have not yet come. We pray that you will draw them. Fulfill your great promise that I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all kinds of people to myself. Do it, Lord Jesus, we pray. For your name's sake, amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.